Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Eschatological is a one-word tongue twister that's not just for biblical scholars and seminary students. Dr. Gregory Beale joins us to parse out some of its more practical implications in answering questions like, how does eschatology explain marriage or even divorce? And Todd's dying to know, do all dogs go to heaven? Well, today on the show, we're very privileged to have a good friend of mine, colleague from Westminster Theological Seminary, where he teaches New Testament, and also a fellow presbyter in the presbytery of the Philadelphia of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, my good friend, Greg Beale. Welcome to the show, Greg. Well, thanks, Carl. We're going to start today by, we, we, we like sometimes to psychologically profile our guests, so we're going to start today with a word association thing. I'm going to say a word or a phrase, and you have to say the first word that comes into your head. Are you ready for this? Yes. New Testament. Eschatology. Revelation. Eschatology. Cabernet Sauvignon. Eschatology. <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Temple. <laughs> Hillary Clinton. Garden of Eden. <laughs> Mass in B minor. Bach. Library. Eschatology. Ferrari. Um, uh, temple. <laughs> OPC. Temple. Oh, I thought you'd have said absent without leave there. Was, uh, <laughs> uh, mad woman in the attic. My wife. <laughs> well, that's an interesting segue, actually, into the, uh, the uh, very first section. I think, Amy, you wanted to actually talk to Greg about the, the relationship between two of the words that he's raised there, eschatology and my wife. Not yes. my wife, but his wife. Yes. So. Or all wives and husbands. Yes, I, so I've recently moved from West Virginia back to Maryland again. And so while I was packing and doing all that, I downloaded on iTunes U your whole talk on uh, New Testament biblical theology. And right away in your first talk, you you know go in strong with this eschatological language and you say eschatology is the key to our spiritual lives. And then you continue with all the ways eschatology is the key to our understanding of the spirit. And then you kind of half jokingly but also seriously say that um, you're thinking about teaching a class or maybe writing a book on eschatology and enjoying your mate. Because you, you talk about how if you have a proper understanding of eschatology, it will really improve your marriage. So I wanted to ask you to expand on that a little bit and what your thoughts were there. Well, um, I've forgotten about writing that book. if you're going to write book. that book, yeah, I want to read that. <laughs> My wife would like me probably to write that. Um, Does she think you qualify to write it? Um, well, that's probably why I've forgotten about writing it. But, um, um, yeah, well, if, if it's true that um, uh, es- eschatology is central to the New Testament, and, and of course I, I need to stop, the eschatology uh, uh, most people think of it as future things, you know, what's going to happen in the future. Um, and in that first lecture, in that uh, um, course, actually, that you were listening to on New Testament biblical theology, what I do in the first few lectures is show that uh, eschatology is not just futurology, but it's an already 
and uh, thing, it's an already a reality that's going on that, that most of the phrases uh, of latter days and end times, last hour in the New Testament, most of them are not uh, exclusively about the future. Most talk about what has just begun to happen in the past and is happening. And um, so, um, uh, so, so I think the the, the apostles, and I, I can't, of course, summarize the whole course uh, in the lectures that you were listening to, but uh, but the apostles breathe the air of eschatology. I don't think that they could um, think of major theological notions and doctrines without eschatology covering. Uh, 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 those doctrines and uh, coloring those doctrines, and, and it was the lens through which they looked at at, at material. And so, um, so I think that every in, in, in the book that I wrote, a New Testament biblical theology, uh, another long book, Carl, mm-hmm. um, which um, uh, the publishers asking me to to cut down, um, <laughs> cut down to maybe, a mere, mere seven hundred pages. Would you be interested? <laughs> I have a spare decade, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but 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 there, I try to show the, the various the various aspects of the Christian uh, of, of Christianity and, and, and theology, New Testament theology, that are uh, to be seen through a already and not yet end time lens. So, getting to um, marriage, of course, I, I have a section on the Christian life. Um, but when you get to marriage, I suppose that that one could go all the way back. Um, uh, since temple is my second favorite word, mm-hmm. go all the way back to uh, what I argued in my temple book, that Adam and Eve <clears throat> were priests in the Garden of Eden, which was a temple. Mm-hmm. If they had been faithful to God as image bearers, of course, you know, when you have temples in the ancient Near East, you put images in it. So that's Genesis 1, 26, 28, God created humanity as an image, creates the sanctuary in Genesis 2, and, 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 and places the image there. Uh, of humanity, a living image, and and so Adam and Eve are uh, uh, to be there, but they're not just there in a static way. They are uh, to reflect um, God's um, presence, uh, um, His attributes, and um, as they do that, of course, part of the commission in Genesis one twenty six twenty eight is not just to rule and subdue, but to uh, increase and multiply, and so they're increasing and multiplying image bearers who also will reflect God's image. And, and eventually they will, as they do that, you know, as a family gets bigger, you add on. And so the, the, the temple is going to expand and expand until it, it covers the whole earth, and the whole earth is covered with the glory of God. So that's the intention of uh, uh, marriage right there. Mm-hmm. Now, when, when you get Christ as the last Adam, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> you get... Uh, um, uh, the Ephesians 5, with uh, the church being uh, the bride of, of Christ. Of course, husbands love uh, um, his wife as, as, as Christ loves the church. Yeah, I think you mentioned something in your lecture about he should give his wife anything she asks for, something as long like as it's not that. sinful. Um, <laughs> I, I, I forgot that one. Oh, yeah, but, I remember that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the, basically uh, what, what you have then is uh, the re-inauguration of the Edenic situation with, with Christ, last Adam, doing what the first Adam should have done, establishes himself as a, a temple sanctuary, uh, a latter-day one, and uh, all those who identify with him become part of that 
uh, temple sanctuary. And, um, and then with specific regard to marriage, um, the marriage relationship is, is, is centered around the way the last Adam relates to his new bride, the church. And so as husbands give themselves to wives, as wives uh, faithfully uh, uh, um, uh, relate to their husbands, um, what that does is it's a redemptive historical um, model on the stage of the world before unbe- uh, the unbelieving world. As we act this out, perhaps we not, may not be talking about the, the gospel with our lips uh, all the time at every moment, but as we act this out, we are acting out the redemptive historical drama of the last Adam coming, uh, who's, who's done what the first Adam should have done, and he's going to be faithful to his, his bride. And um, uh, this, this is why I think the instructions there in Ephesians 5 are not um, circumstantial. They're not just for certain times and places, uh, but they're for all times and places. There's some who, who really kick against the goads about what Paul says about women in that passage mm-hmm. and wives. And, but if it's a redemptive historical thing showing what, how husbands and wives should relate until Christ comes back, then that's something that's an ongoing thing. Now, I think one of the keys to it is to see how uh, were Adam and Eve's, how was Adam and Eve's relationship to flourish in the garden, and why didn't it? Well, um, and I think this relates to how husbands and wives can love each other and be faithful to one another now. And that is uh, uh, God gave them uh, a verse, actually two lines, in, in chapter 2. And um, that's all I had to remember, you know. I, I mean, after the fall, we got hundreds of verses, thousands of them. But um, uh, when the serpent confronts Eve, she misquotes these, you know. Uh, she says, you should not eat it or touch it. She becomes the first legalistic Pharisee. Um, uh, she uh, tells... Said she became the first liberal, too. <laughs> well, that's uh, when, when she said, uh, God said, you... Uh, uh, when you eat of it, you shall die, die, in the Hebrew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. English, surely die. She says, you'll die. Just uses the word once. Mm-hmm. So she's underplaying yeah. uh, the notion of judgment. And he says, you may eat freely. She says, we may eat. So she downplays. So whether she's the first false teacher or she's just not remembering, I, I tend to think it's, it's that. And I think that Adam was the one ultimately responsible for her not remembering. Uh, I think that's why she's not in my opinion, blame for the fall, besides the fact he's a chief priest and he's accountable for the whole thing. But uh, so, you, you know, I think as, as we come together in marriage, I think one of the purposes is to remember this redemptive historical drama that we're acting out as a witness to the world. And that key, the key to it, I think, at least certainly an essential aspect of it, is to remember God's word. And all of this is happening uh, in this already and not yet eschatological drama of the last Adam who has come and relating to his end-time bride. And, and, and marriage is, is then a subset that is to reflect that. That's a book. That's a book, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. You also give the picture in your lecture uh, from Genesis of the husband leaving his family and clinging to his wife that every time we marry, we see that redemptive picture of Christ Mm. coming in the incarnation yes. and clinging to his yeah. wife, his bride, the church. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought that was such a beautiful yeah. picture. Yeah, I think I talk about that a little bit in the Hidden But Now Revealed yes. book. Because, mm-hmm. uh, in Ephesians that, 5 that, with the mystery. The, the, the use of, one use of mystery is in Ephesians 5, mm-hmm. and it's, it's a very debated text. But um, Yeah, I really liked that part. I got a lot out of that part. 
Well, it's interesting because, uh, Dr. Beal, one of the things we've noticed, those of us that, that read your books, is that there, you have a pattern of writing a very, very thick book. And now we're very thankful that, that somebody's come along and thought, we need to have Beal for the masses. And so they're um, hopefully, we, we've been, some folks have be been working on. a good series right there. Beal for the masses. Beal for the masses. Todd's going to ask if you can put pictures into the next <laughs> one. That would be a real help getting, to him. We're getting to pictures. The, the, the graphic and, novel, and sort of Greg Beal. Right. Well, Beal for the about. masses reminds me of the, the first book that I wrote was um, uh, nothing but my doctoral dissertation, unrevised. And one of the reviews was that Beal's writing style will repel the wider audience. <laughs> Well, I would just commend. I mean, a lot of the things, a lot of the things that that if if you're at all familiar or, or not familiar with with Greg Beale's writing, a lot of the things, some of the categories he's been dealing in 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 talking about marriage and eschatology just then, you'll find some of those same categories in his book, The, the Simple and the Church's Mission, and then which which is an excellent book. But I was very glad this past year when a a, a more user-friendly, abridged version uh, came out uh, called God Dwells Among Us, which is an excellent, excellent adaptation um, to make it a little bit less frightening uh, to, the, uh, to, to the average, more popular reader. And, and, and I would encourage people to read that book because, for me, when I read The Temple and the Church's Mission, it helped me so much in my categories for understanding Genesis. It changed the way I yep. read Scripture. Yep. It really opened yep. up very, a lot very for helpful. Me in my reading scripture. Made so much sense to me in things that had been a little vexing for me. That helped bring some together. I think Carl mentioned earlier that that uh, Greg's uh, shorter commentary on Re- on Revelation is still longer than most of the normal commentaries <laughs> on Revelation. But but uh, we we do we do appreciate uh, the. Uh, the, the more abridged uh, work. You can out. use that commentary devotionally, though. Absolutely. I do that. I, I, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. The Revelation one. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? Yes, mm-hmm. you can. That's encouraging. I'm, I was, I'm I using it side by side with the journals. Be, yeah. And so I'll write like a page on my journal and then I'll go into, I have Beale's mm-hmm. commentary on Revelation. That's one, the main one I'm using right now. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Dennis Johnson's Triumph of the Lamb. I like to use Aren't you mispronouncing too. that? Isn't it journal? Journables. Oh, I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. I figured. I figured it was intentional. Oh yes. It's just, yeah. Journables is Reformed Heritage books. You can rewrite scripture on your own in a little. Well, not rewrite not scripture. Rewrite you transcribe. Yeah, that's yeah. not the right way to say it, is it? <laughs> I'm rewriting scripture. You need I to go home and ask your husband about write that. Write scripture. Sorry. I just wanted to hear an explanation of it. I didn't know what. Yeah. It yeah. It kind of. It kind of helps me to pause a little bit on areas where I would skim by in my own reading if I'm writing it down. I like that. Well, I and I, I mean, one of the things that helped me, I, I was raised Southern Baptist and so, and, and dispensationalist. And, and honestly, one of the things that helped me a great deal in, in eschatology and being warmed once again to eschatology after having been burnt out on it was some things that, uh, that Dr. Beale had written, um, the first time we met, I think you were recommending, was it The Late Great Planet Earth? Yes, absolutely. You said it was much better than Beale. And shorter, yeah. much shorter. Yeah, I love how Lindsay, I celebrate yeah. his entire catalog. Yeah. And I, I always feel if you're writing a book on Revelation, I mean, don't take this personally, Greg, but I think the best books on Revelation can be made into movies on the whole. <laughs> and I just don't see your stuff cutting it, cutting it in Christian Hollywood. So you may want to go back to the drawing board on, on the Revelation front. Yeah, maybe so. you can give me some ideas uh, yeah. to, to, to help me with my investments. I, I think you ought to chat to Nicolas Cage. I think he's, he, he, <laughs> he's he likes acting in these kind of movies. So. Just a quick question then, Greg, building off 
to, to, to go back to being serious again. Um, divorce. You? <laughs> <laughs> divorce. How would you see New Testament teaching on divorce connecting to your view of marriage and eschatology? Because that's a very practical question that a lot of pastors face on a sadly fairly regular basis. Um, what would you personally see as being the, the circumstances for a legitimate divorce, if indeed you think there is such a thing as a, as a legitimate divorce? Well, um, you know, the Westminster Confession allows, you know, has two exceptions for adultery and desertion. Mm. Um, so, you know, that's where I would draw the line. Uh, there are a lot of interpretations about what are those two things. Right. Right. <clears throat> uh, we could we could get into that, yeah. but um, for myself though, in Matthew nineteen, to me, it seems that Jesus is giving us an eschatological, new creational ideal mm-hmm. for divorce. Yeah. Uh, that <clears throat> um, you know, when the two are joined together, they should not be separated, and uh, the divorce. This wasn't the way it was in the beginning. Mm. And, and and Jesus says, but divorce came because of the hardness of your hearts. And so I think that the eschatological ideal is for no divorce, but because of the hardness of hearts, I, I think we have exceptions that are ongoing. Now, of course, part of the problem with saying that that's ongoing is that Jesus is talking about hardness of the heart in Israel. Mm. Does that relate to the New Covenant uh, situation, and that's a very tough question to answer, but I would just elaborate in this way, um, that um, first of all, the hardness of heart probably referred not merely to unbelievers, but to some degree to believers in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, Um, Isaiah 6, the, the hardening, the blinding there is, in, in, in Matthew 13 and, and elsewhere in the Gospels, is almost always applied only to unbelieving Israel as to why they're not believing. But in Mark 8, it's applied to the disciples. And it says, do you not yet see? Do you not yet hear? Um, and, and, and they're part of the hardened lot. They've been influenced, but they're slowly but surely coming out. Now, all of that is to say... Um, it's a, it, this is a tough one about whether this is a unique redemptive historical thing or not. But Revelation applies what Jesus says about Isaiah 6 and Matthew 13 and applies it to the churches. Mm. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so I, I do think that there is some continuity between this notion of the hardness of the heart yeah. from the old to the new. Now, that's a little bit of an explanation, but the whole point of it is to say that giving this exception because of the hardness of the heart, I think may continue on into the New Covenant age. But it needs to be remembered. It's it's because, to some degree or another, because of the hardness of the heart. Right, right. And this is not the idea. This is not the eschatological <clears throat> ideal. So I, I think as pastors we should strive with all of the gusto we have to um, keep people together to as much as we can. To repair marriages where we can. Yeah, yeah that's good advice. Good advice. Yeah. Uh, Greg, you have a foot both in the academic world and in the church world in that you're ordained, you preach, as well as you're 
your tasks as a, as a seminary professor and a lecturer. How do you understand, if this question isn't too broad, but answer it any way you'd like, how do you understand your role as a, as a teacher, as a professor, as a lecturer um, in the preparation of young men who are heading into the world of, of church ministry, being pastors? Well, <clears throat> part of this answer relates to my um, past teaching experience. Uh, uh, I started out at a four-year undergraduate school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grove City College, Northwestern Pennsylvania, and uh, it was an undergraduate school, so we're not preparing pastors there. But then uh, Gordon Conwell uh, contacted me and said that they had a position in New Testament, and and I was very interested in that uh, because they were training pastors, Mm -hmm. and uh, I felt that I had been trained to um, uh, teach uh, the the original languages of the Bible to students in order that they could, together with their English Bibles, understand what a text is saying and then better convey it to their congregations. Uh, and I did that for 16 years there. I even taught a course called From Biblical Text to uh, mm. Sermon Manuscript, which I enjoyed greatly. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so I'm very committed to that. Then I, for a number of reasons, went on to Wheaton, where um, they were interested in starting a doctoral program and a new master's of biblical exegesis. And so I went there, but it was a more academically geared program mm-hmm. in the sense that those who came into the program were really interested in further graduate right. school right. after that, not so much the pastoral ministry, even though we who were teaching in it were still intent on teaching um, uh, scholar pastors. Mm-hmm. So, but, but nevertheless, the the atmosphere, the zeitgeist of that program was more more with academic ends. Sure. And it's one thing that after 10 years being there that led me back to a seminary. Mm-hmm. So uh, part of the approach that I have in teaching uh, is is to teach the languages in such a way. I, I have an approach called uh, discourse analysis. It's not at all unique with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Piper uh, uh, teaches that mm-hmm. up at his school and his, his uh, colleagues and Tom Schreiner does at Southern Seminary, um, but it's 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 a, it's a process whereby, especially in the original languages, you can use it best to find the main point in a paragraph or a chapter. And that's amazing. If you could really find the main point in a paragraph or chapter, then that's what you're going to zero in on as a pastor. I've even written a little book called an interpretative lexicon to the Greek New Testament that 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 further refines and sharpens this procedure. And so I'm very concerned about that. I'm very concerned that students have a commitment to train rigorously, which is the case, I think, at Westminster, Mm -hmm. but it's also rigorously in the languages so that when they leave, um, they may forget some of it. um, But it's sort of like a, a, a doctor who wants to become, you know, a family doctor, not a surgeon. They still do surgery in medical school on the original body, and so so also do we here yeah. on the original body of the text. And so um, we, we try to encourage students uh, in, in various ways or, or give them advice on how to keep up their languages. Um, you know, just translate a verse a day. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's part of your text for the sermon. That'll keep, that'll keep your languages up. There are a couple of... Uh, um, actually um, online 
uh, uh, programs mm -hmm. where, you know, one verse a day in Hebrew, one verse yeah. a day in Greek that you can find, too, that are very helpful. But nevertheless, they'll even if they become a bit rusty, they'll be able to use uh, Greek and Hebrew lexicons. Right. They'll, 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 have a, they'll be able to use commentaries much, much better. Yeah. But especially they'll be able first to go to the text and see what the text is saying. Right. So that might be a long explanation. Yeah. No, 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 that's good. That's good. What's your – this is just this um, totally out of the blue, but it's actually one that I wanted to ask because um, I've, I've – Because you're a fanboy. Come on. I, well, no, no. <laughs> uh, other, other than your own commentary, of course, and I know uh, – what's, uh, what's your favorite uh, commentary on the book of Revelation? Serious. Absolutely serious. My favorite commentary on the book of Revelation um, – well, I'll tell you one that meant a lot to my wife and me. It meant a great deal, and I still recommend it because it's even though it's more popular mm -hmm. and uh, and it is short. Um, it's Hendrickson's uh, yes. More Than Conquerors. We read that while I was doing my dissertation research on the Book of Revelation, and it, it, it gives you a good overview of the book, uh, cognitively, if you will. But also, it's very uh, it's very devotional. We read that yeah. together over a period of. Uh, um, period of months so so that, that, that that's one that i would recommend i, I point that i point lay people to that a lot when, because i get it's interesting you know lay people are interested in revelation because so much because there's so much bad stuff out there on revelation and mm -hmm. and that's one that i routinely point people to as yeah i mean it's not a thorough commentary right. and it's not a typical commentary in the sense of a commentary mm -hmm. but nevertheless it's a helpful guy it's, it's, it's to the book. I, that's the way i would put it yeah I still prefer Salem Curb and Mark of the Beast, but uh, we'll leave that on side. Carl, what is that on your forehead? <laughs> In that book, there's a great photo of somebody being held down on, a, on an altar to be branded with 666 by some Chicago policeman, I think it is. And the brand reads 666, so you realize that actually the Beast is branding people with his number the wrong way around. It's an absolute piece of classic Americana, if I can put it that way. Anyway, Amy. That's great. I think you're, you look as if you've got a burning question. For, it's for it's more there. speculative. I don't know if it's something you even want to answer, but um, thinking eschatologically, I always, like, one way that I always like to talk to other people and think about my own roles and vocations is to think how how that'll play out in eternity on the new heavens and the new earth um what eternal value is there and what i'm doing and so with the role of preaching how do you think that that will be on the new heavens and the new earth i mean it's not necessarily evangelistic but do you think that you're calling here as, as a pastor and and then as a teacher of theology um do you ever think about what that'll look like on the new heavens and the new earth? I kind of look at that the way I was looking at marriage, that in a certain sense it's temporary, isn't it? I mean, marriage is. Right. and I mean, it's going to stop with the new heavens and new earth, And um, as, as far as I understand Scripture. And so I, I do see that uh, what we're doing, what we're doing is trying to understand the Word better in order to, to teach others to know it better in order to convey it to others that they would know it and hence uh, not only experience salvation but sanctification and that they would honor God. And so, you know, um, at the very end, Revelation 21, 4 says that we'll be in God's face, literally. You know, uh, his name will be on our head and 
will be before his face, and we'll all be high priests. And there won't even be an incense cloud. Even with the high priest in the Old Testament temple, there was an incense cloud right. to shield him from the raw, revelatory, Shekinah glory of God. Otherwise, he himself would be struck dead. So I, I take it that, you know, as First Corinthians uh, 13 says that, you know, at that point, we'll know all things uh, even Will as we've we been learning? known. Will we be learning Yes, in the sense that uh, God is inexhaustible and his knowledge is, mm-hmm. is certainly infinite, I suppose, that, that we will. But um, I don't, for myself, of course, you're asking a question that we have, well, virtually no biblical data. Right, to, I know. I said speculative. <laughs> we want you to speculate. <laughs> so, so this is speculation, of course. I do think, I do think we're going to be in a very physical mm-hmm. heavens and earth because there is this very popular notion, uh, you know, that when you die, you're in the clouds of heaven, and then your that old just dog continues. And your grandfather got a pair of wings and a hawk. Did you say what did you say? You're... With your old dog that passed away. And... Oh, yeah. have, Greg, Greg has interesting views on dogs in heaven. Excellent. I, I have a biblical theology of dogs. There are times when the heart rules the head. There are times when the heart rules the head. Dogs have to be there. I met Greg. I met Greg one afternoon. I thought. I should have canceled. I thought, I thought his wife had died. He was devastated. And it turned out his dog, beloved dog, had died. And you spent. It, we, you just spent had, the we, we just had the. We just put down our dog an yeah. hour earlier. It's the worst. It was that. horrible. We sat in the pub yeah. and Greg developed a theology of there you go. doggy heaven. Okay. Carl's conclusion was, oh, that sounds just like the Pope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Papa Francesco There's a, was doing okay, a very so similar we, we, thing. We've got him writing a book on eschatology and marriage uh-huh. and now dogs in heaven. Dogs, and I'm dogs, dogs in heaven. That one will be a bestseller. Book. Greg? No one's going to care about marriage. Not, not dogs, dogs in heaven? Oprah. Not dogs in heaven, but dogs in the new heavens and earth. Dogs in the new heavens and new earth. Elect dogs in the new heavens and earth. Elect dogs in the new earth. You need to make the title more catchy. Let's keep it going. No, I wouldn't say elect. Don't don't start doing that. We we refer to our. We have a new dog, by the way. But uh, uh, we 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 just refer to our dogs as little pagans. And um, when we go to church, say, "No, you're not coming." You need to read David Bentley Hart in First Things. He's he's, he's got a whole theology of dogs. I may need to get that when I write my book. I I want it to be known. I want us to get credit at uh, Mortification of Spin for having Greg Beal on to talk about dogs mm-hmm. i i think there's i think i think we've broken some some good ground yeah. um yeah. in in that way in fact that would probably be worth a follow-up visit just to talk about dogs in heaven yeah. so well listen uh we new are, heavens and earth new heavens and new earth <laughs> exactly. he's like a dog with a bone with that phrase you know, so. <laughs> well we are very happy that uh, you all joined us today we're thankful that uh, greg beale was able to be with us let me just point of personal uh, privilege. Uh, we've already mentioned his book, uh, the, the Temple and the Church's Mission. We would encourage you to read that or at least read God Dwells Among Us, which is a wonderful uh, kind of an abridged version of it that's excellent, excellent to help give you categories for understanding uh, the, the narrative of Scripture, understanding eschatology, etc. I would also just put in a plug because it was so helpful for me. Uh, from several years ago, uh, Dr. Beale's book, The Erosion of Inerrancy in Evangelicalism, mm-hmm. was very important. Um, it's a series of, of articles and reviews, and um, uh, he, he deals with certain um, uh, criticisms against the trustworthiness of Scripture very clearly, very specifically. But there's he, the man has a whole catalog of books. You won't go wrong, but those are certainly ones that uh, 
that I've very much appreciated. So, uh, Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be here. And we'll talk to you all next time. Well, we want to end today's program in a slightly unusual way. It's a little-known fact that in the early 1980s, when Greg Beale was living in Great Britain and had considerably more hair, he was a huge influence on the burgeoning heavy metal scene. And a number of the great amillennial metal bands actually found his writings to be tremendous inspiration for their own creative work. And so it's only appropriate that we close out this program, having interviewed Greg, with the greatest of those tracks. A track that was not only inspired by his writings, but was dedicated in gratitude to him. It is, of course, Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast. Take it away, Bruce. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a Reformed awakening in today's church. We don't have his book, Dogs in Heaven, but this week we'd like to offer you a chance to win a copy of Greg Beale's book, Hidden But Now Revealed, A Biblical View of Mystery, published by InterVarsity Press. Go to mortificationofspin.org to sign up and find links to other resources. And listen next time to hear this reality about pastoral ministry. The era of the full-time pastor is probably, for a number of reasons, coming to an end in many churches. A bivocational ministry, the idea that a minister could be called effectively part-time while pursuing another job that actually provided their, their living wage was becoming very commonplace. and I think it's becoming more of a reality in conservative circles now as well. And so my concern for a lot of guys um, is that their expectation is that they will be like one of these well-known guys who pulls in minimum 200K at his church, and in some cases more than that. Join us then. And don't forget to visit mortificationofspin.org to find posts from Todd, Amy, and Carl and to enter to win Hidden But Now Revealed, a biblical theology of mystery. So, yeah, so I'm glad you ended on that note, because I, I, I honestly, that week, I was so miserable, I was having to, to think through my theology. That would be the, his role in the new heavens and the earth. He's going to take you to the doggy mm, heaven. Exactly. <laughs> He's going to well, guide you there. So my, my whole theory was, okay. My, like, See, I told you. In, in, in the midst of my grief, I was going, well, new heavens and new earth. God created dogs. Dogs yeah. are wonderful things. Why, why, why would we not be able to enjoy 
the Pushes good things. Your dog. The good things. Oh no, it'll be my dog because my dog was the best. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there may have been dogs before the fall. I think cats are probably a product of the fall. I agree. I, I'm not <laughs> sure there'll be cats okay, in the new heaven. There will be no cats in heaven. Well, let me just say this. New heaven. We, we had a lab, and we're going to get another lab hopefully this next week. But we have a cat also. And, oh. and it's only because we got her when she was a kitten several years ago because my wife and daughter got mm. And I love that thing. They and are I ruthless mercenary animals. I do not animal. like This cats. one is very they're ruthless and mercenary. Super low, they're super low maintenance. I think yeah. they can leave town. acid at all yeah. times. We can leave town. You just leave they're out enough food and water. Schizophrenic. Yeah. Wow. And they take care of themselves. She's very affectionate. She talks all the time. 